Certainly a blessing, isn't it, to be able to come back and gather on this Sunday afternoon to appreciate not only the richness and the provisions that God has made for us earlier in the day, but that we can even gather again in His name and do so in such a way that it will not only be a glorification to Him, but certainly a blessing to us as well. In the lesson tonight, you may already notice that it will involve another question. It seems as though some of the lessons of late have centered around various questions found in the Word of God, and such will be the case again this evening. Whom say ye that I am? Brother John just read from Matthew 16, 15, a verse that he commented was a little on the brief side, but nonetheless a verse that has so much to say in terms of not only what it includes but what it suggests. This opening slide as an introduction, we'll highlight the thought of questions found in the Word of God. Isn't it amazing how God so often used a question, a pertinent and appropriately asked question, to teach something He wanted to be taught? In Jeremiah 37, 17, that interesting king of old Zedekiah said, Is there any word from the Lord? And of course, you and I know Jeremiah said yes. In Romans 4, 3, Paul asked the question, what saith the Scripture? And you and I still, of course, rest with great power upon the nature of always using Bible authority. Tonight, the question, Whom say ye that I am? When Jesus asked that question, what was the setting of it? And what was the implication that went with it? And how might that be a benefit and somewhat great interest for us tonight? First, I believe it fairly reasonable to at least devote a few moments and place the setting of the passage. As is often the case, that can turn out to be rather revealing and somewhat helpful. And so it shall be this evening. As Matthew chapter 16 begins, we learn rather quickly that, of course, the Lord's personal ministry had been ongoing for some time by the point of this passage. Somewhat over two years, it would appear. And yet, as we come to this one, we notice that there was an immediate discussion about signs, S-I-G-N-S, signs. In fact, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to the Lord, and they asked Him about a sign. Show us a sign from heaven, they demanded. And Jesus was quick to say, You're able to discern the weather by signs. When the sky is redness, or when in fact it's red in the morning, you know it'll be either fair weather or it'll be unfair weather. And he then rebuked them. You can discern the time, you can discern the weather, but yet you can't discern the times. May I suggest there's in essence a rather interesting challenge in that for us. The Lord had told them and he had exhibited before them the majesty and the truth of heaven, and they were unwilling to accept it. They were willfully refusing to honor the signs that had been shown to them. Today, may I suggest, we could be guilty of the same. The infallible Word of God is given, and sometimes, isn't it true? You and I know of folks who blatantly choose to refuse it. They choose to ignore and deny it. But yet after that, isn't it true that Jesus went on to say this to them? After rebuking them for those things, verse number 6, he called their attention to the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees and warned His disciples to take heed. Now, they didn't understand. The text informs us that they thought Jesus was talking about the fact that they had brought no bread. But He was quick to point out in verse 9, they didn't understand. 
with that thought behind us and the characteristic warnings connecting to the signs and the features about that teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, why don't we then appreciate that in verse 13, we notice that the Lord came to an interesting location. The text says, When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, on the mount, that place is rather far north and west in the region of Palestine. In fact, as far as the biblical record tells us, it's the most northern excursion that Jesus ever made. Now, I suppose maybe some text that hadn't been recorded for us, maybe He had gone somewhat more northward than that. But as far as the biblical text informs us, this is the furthest northward He ever traveled. With that in mind, look at how that slide ends. In this location, Jesus taught a rather remarkable teaching, and He did so in a couple of questions. The next slide will bring, bring both of those questions before us. And the first one is this. Verse number 13, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In other words, He polled His disciples. Who are the various people of the world? Who do they say that I am? What kind of identity are they ascribing to me? Isn't it interesting that here we notice what the answers were that those apostles were quick to say. Verse 14, Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some Elias, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Notice there was a variety of answers. People who didn't know exactly who he was and who offered their thinking on the subject said, some thought that he was John the Baptist. We remember John had already been killed by this time. He'd been beheaded back in Matthew chapter 14. Some who didn't know exactly who the Lord was likened him to His power and His presentation to John the Baptist. May I suggest that's quite a commendation of John the Baptist. But notice there were others who again, verse 14, some think that you are Elijah. Our mind races back to the days of the Old Testament and there we well recall the boldness and courage of Elijah who in 1 Kings 18, for example, on that Mount Carmel officiated in many ways over a contest between the prophets of Baal and the greatness of God. And of course, God answered by fire. Some commended Elijah very highly by not likening Jesus to him. Look at the next one, Jeremiah. I've often thought this is one of the highest commendations anywhere in the Bible to Jeremiah. Now, he was a bold prophet of the Old Testament, and in his book of 52 chapters, much is said about him, and much is said about the nature of the life and times in which he labored. But when people who were not convinced who the Lord was had to liken him to somebody, somebody, someone likened him to Jeremiah. What a commendation of Jeremiah. The fourth one was one of the prophets. I list all those on the slide, and again, for your consideration. But after asking that question, Jesus asked a second one. Verse number 15, He saith unto them. Now, the Lord wasn't asking, who do other people say I am? He asked these apostles, who do you say I am? At this point, you and I know that Simon Peter is going to take the lead and answer. Verse number 16, Thou art the Christ 
the Son of the living God. The question of our lesson tonight, however, was the one asked in verse 15. Whom say ye that I am? What do we devote the remainder of our time tonight to reflect upon the question and some answers, some responses that maybe some religious folk might be willing to offer even in our day? As we do that, we'll notice several supposed answers, and we will develop them beginning with this one. That question, may I suggest, is certainly vitally important. Each one of us will, in fact, have to ultimately provide an answer and all of eternity will hang in the balance. Is He the Son of God or is He not? As we move our way in development toward a conclusion, let's begin like this. <clears throat> there are many people willing to admit and perhaps willing to rather emphatically say that He was a good man. And how I chose that as our first one of the evening. Whom say ye that I am? Some might be willing to ascribe a goodness to his being. You'll note on that slide, there's no doubt he was a good man. Acts 10.38 will quickly affirm to you and I, he went about doing good. Peter made that statement and did so with such boldness. Sure enough, the Lord was a good man. How often did he exhibit concern and compassion for those who were downtrodden, for those who were the afflicted, for those who were the disadvantaged in some way. In Mark 6, 34, there was a large crowd of 5,000 men gathered. The Lord had compassion on them because it was getting late in the day, and if they went away hungry, they might faint in the way. He fed them, of course, with five loaves and two fish. And He also fed the children and women that may also have been a part of that company. But we notice that's but one example of many others. A couple of chapters later, we notice, of course, that he fed 4,000, and much of the reasoning is somewhat similar. Maybe it's enough to highlight very quickly. Many people on this earth have elements of physical goodness about them. Jesus was much more than merely a good man. What about number two? Many would be quick to acclaim him as a good, perhaps a great teacher. And I believe each of us who have made any attempt to teach would be quick to echo that sentiment and perhaps say a hearty amen with respect to it. To be sure, the Lord was a fantastic teacher, outstanding in so many respects. May I point out that to this day, 20 centuries later, we still, in many ways, utilize His methodologies in teaching, and some of the truths He taught are still at the forefront of our thinking. People who don't know much about the Bible at all quite often know about a good Samaritan. Jesus taught that in Luke chapter 10. Many people who know very little about the Bible on the whole, are, they know a lot about a rich man and Lazarus. The Lord taught that in Luke 16. Many people who may not know much about the Word of God, they also have heard about truths concerning a rich man, as you and I learned in Luke 12 this morning. I would say all that to say that many of the parables he taught and the approaches that he taught have been so ingrained in the thinking of the human family that to this day it is a powerful way to teach some marvelous, memorable truths. Matthew chapter 13 is sometimes known as the parable chapter of the Bible. 
Seven parables taught in that chapter alone. The parable of the soils is the one that begins the list of seven. But soon to follow it was the parable of the tares. I would say again, those are some of the most well-known teachings that hearken in our minds to this day. A great teacher, no doubt about that. But may I be quick to say, he wasn't just a good teacher. As fantastic as he was at that, he was so much more. Number three, some might be quick to say, a prophet. Remember, even those who didn't know exactly who he was likened him to one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Those men who spoke with courage. And they spoke the Word of God with directness. And they spoke it with often a great powerful ring of application. Didn't the Lord do that? He surely did. So even in our day, some might be quick to acknowledge he was a good prophet. On that slide, you'll notice that in Amos 3.7, it was there affirmed by the prophet Amos that the God of heaven would do nothing without first revealing it to his prophets. In John 12.49, Jesus says, The Father has revealed to you through me the nature of that which he wished to speak. So we could quickly say, indeed, the Lord was a prophet. But he was much more than that. Number four, in addition to the elements we've seen to this point, a priest. When you and I think back to the days of the Old Testament, and we recollect the station and the work of the priest, we too would quickly acknowledge Jesus was a priest, and maybe others upon earth would be quick to do the same. Jesus occupies, though, not just the role of a priest. He's the high priest. The book of Hebrews emphasizes that many times. Hebrews 3.1, Hebrews 4.14, Hebrews 8.1, all acclaim and directly state that the Lord is, may I say, is our high priest. No doubt about it. He's the high priest. You may recall that the duties of the priest would include this. He not only would offer for the benefit of the people, he would offer for himself. The book of Hebrews, as well as other New Testament books, state for us that he offered. But he offered himself for our sins, Hebrews 9.28, that in so doing we might appear before God, precious and pure. A priest, absolutely. The high priest of this present era, but you may note number five, a king. Some might acknowledge his kingship. They perhaps would refuse to go much beyond that. Notice some of the passages I would ask you to at least keep in mind as we think briefly about the kingship of the Lord. Many times in the New Testament, He is set forth as King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul stated that in 1 Timothy 6.15, the writer of Revelation, John, would acclaim it with such directness and quite frankly, emphatically in Revelation 17, 14 and again in Revelation 19, 16. In all of those places and others alike, we come face to face with the kingship of Jesus. Surely when we ask, Whom say ye that I am? We might could say the king. But you'll notice on that slide, some things go with a king. He has to have a kingdom. It makes no sense to speak of a king without a kingdom over which he, that he might reign. 
the Lord then would frequently speak about His kingdom. Did He not admit to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world, He would say in John 18, 36. A king indeed. Maybe that thought of a king leads us to reflect on the movement toward that reality even from the Old Testament prophecies. Among others, didn't Daniel reveal to us in Daniel 7.14 that when the Son of Man would pass through the clouds of the Ancient of Days, He would receive a kingdom with all the dominion and majesty and power that would go with it. That text was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 when in fact the Lord having ascended through the clouds in His ascension, the Father gave Him a kingdom. And He reigns over it till this day and does so with an absoluteness in His character as King. One by one we've looked at five elements. When asked, Whom say ye that I am? We could admit any of them. And we would all be correct. Let's don't stop there though. What about number six? A mediator. We're beginning to appreciate a number of the roles and offices and activities that were a part of that which the Lord does even till our day to day. We understand what a mediator does. It is a go-between, an individual or maybe even a group that strives to make peace between parties that are at odds. Those who are in some way at a standstill in a means of disagreement the mediator seeks to make peace among them. fact of the matter is, there is a pure God on the one hand and sinful people like you and me on the other. We needed a go-between. We needed a for someone who in fact could serve in an effort to bring us nearer to God. Jesus did that. He does that. How often does the Bible remind us in verses like this one, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is our mediator. He is the one who could identify fully with God, but He could also identify fully with us. He walked among us upon earth. He knew all the temptations that we face, Hebrews 4.15. He faced all the challenges and the grief that we do, and He did so successfully without sin. But certainly, He is the God of heaven. Call Him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That famous wording of Matthew 1, verses 21 to 23. Is it any wonder in light of all these things? We can remember some of the people in the Word of God who lived at a day and a time when they did not enjoy the blessing we have today. I'm thinking particularly about Job. Job didn't have the mediator we have. And no wonder in Job 9.33, he longed and yearned for a daysman that could serve as a mediator between God and me. May I say how much more blessed we are in many ways than Job was. We now have the Lord. We have Jesus the Christ who is our mediator. One that Job only longed for. In that kind of consideration... I've asked you to note on this slide that in Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 1, it is detailed how that ancient Israel had fallen in sin before God and thus had separated from Him. Is it any different for us? The wording of that text is so very direct. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, 
Neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities, your sins have separated between you and your God, and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. What sin did to the ancient Israelites, it does to you and me. It separates us from God, and thus how needful are we of a mediator. How needful are we of one to bring us back unto God. Whom say ye that I am? Some could be quick to say a mediator, and they would be right. But he was more than just a mediator. Look at number 7. Could we not also say the head of the church? There are those in our world who might well give lip service to the headship of Jesus with regard to the church. Maybe being quick to say of some directness concerning the authority that he possesses, the character of his leadership. Let's develop some of those thoughts like this. Colossians 1.18, we'll speak about it like this. He is the head of the church. Now, that statement couldn't be any more direct. He, that's Jesus, is the head of the church. Now, it goes on to say it is His body. And it is the one over which He reigns because He has all preeminence with regard to His being. He is of the first rank. He is of the principal peace and part. The head of the church, absolutely. That headship leads me to say and bring to your attention some of the closing words in the book of Matthew. After He'd been crucified and after He'd been resurrected, to His apostles, He gave them this commission, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, Matthew's accounting of that, Matthew's presentation of that reads like this, All authority hath been given to me in heaven and in earth. The Lord has all authority, thus His supreme nature cannot be doubted. The highness of His position surely cannot be questioned. With regard to the church, He is the absolute leader and monarch. He reigns again over the kingdom. We notice back in point five, He's king. That kingdom is called the church, and He's the head of it. Some of the thoughts I've invited you to consider last on that slide. His respect in that regard surely is keen. And one by one, as we've looked at all of them, whom say ye that I am? May we be quick to acknowledge, in addition to these others, that He is indeed the head of the church. What about number eight? This one might not have come so quick to mind, but I'm going to offer it in light of a couple of the verses that we shall shortly consider. The history of our planet is certainly a long history, numbering somewhat in excess of 6,000 years. A very long time, and over the course of those years, so many worthy individuals have lived, and they've also died. Men like Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Moses, and so many others. And yea, our first century Christian counterparts, they too have long since passed from the scenes of this planet. When you and I attempt to look at history, we see multitudes of countries that exist on our planet and have in days gone by. It may look chaotic. It may look confusing. It may look disjointed. It may look as if there is no thread that weaves any way through it to make a united whole. 
I believe we might need to rethink that. Based on texts such as Revelation chapters 4 and 5, in those particular chapters we read this, In the right hand of the God of heaven was a book. It was sealed seven times, both in and out. And there was writing, we will recall, on both sides of the pages. The scroll, if you please. It obviously had a lot to say. But yet it was sealed, and no man on earth was worthy to loose the seals and reveal the contents of that book. But just as John began to weep over the thought that he would never know what was in the book, suddenly one of those present urged him, Don't cry, don't weep, for... The Lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed, and he and he alone is worthy to take the book, to loose the seals, and reveal the contents. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus the Christ. That chapter will go on to reveal that thought to us, and thus he begins to loose the seals one by one. And in Revelation chapters 6 through 11, the seals are loosed. And what we have in those chapters is a panoramic presentation of history, of presentations connected to not only what is, but what was to be from that time. Doesn't that perhaps teach us that when the Master, the Lord, loosed the seals, He had the power and the right to make connection to the unveiling of the matters in history. Could it be today that through the lens of what is the gospel or the lens of what the Lord has revealed, we too might gain a richer appreciation about the ongoing affairs of time and place and history? I would suggest at least that's worthy of serious consideration. Later on in that same book of Revelation, we find that in chapter 13, those beasts that come before us, those beasts that not only stand forth on the land but also in the sea are beasts that not only brought messages to the folks of that day, but they continue to have principled presentations for us today. And in that presentation of the next chapter at least is the famous mark of the beast, Revelation thirteen eighteen. So when you and I hear folks today talk about the mark of the beast, so much of what we hear is not biblically correct based on the revelation. What the revelation does bring before you and me is a richness of the principle that went with that mark then and the implications for us now. But what about the very year that you and I utilize? We're all comfortable with a calendar the year in which you and I now are, of course, 2021. But may we never forget the designation that goes after it, 2021 A.D. or 2022 A.D. in just a few months if the Lord allows it so to be. Those letters A.D., sometimes you and I may have heard they mean after death. That's literally not true. A.D. means Anno Domini literally in the year of our Lord. The calendar is dated after Him. He is the one who provides us with a thought that we now live in the year 2021 in the year of our Lord. After He came, after His mission on planet earth, everything has been dated by virtue of His coming ever since then. 
That's amazing, isn't it? To reflect on the fact He is the continuing center of time. It's dated based on Him. How about number nine? You might appreciate in this one, I've chosen the phrase, the Lamb of God, based in part on the wording of John 1, verse 29. When John the Baptist was rather, rather early in his ministry, he himself made this observation, Behold the Lamb of God, he said, who taketh away the sin of the world. Now John, of course, knew who the Lord was, and he acclaimed Him then as the Lamb of God. To speak about Him that way certainly is rich in its meaning, and it's powerful in its testimony. I've asked you to note on that slide the role of the Lamb was well known, of course, to the Jews of the Old Testament. It was a Lamb that they offered the Passover season at least when they were able to do so, Exodus 12 reminds us. But in the thought of that lamb, isn't it fascinating here? Without the shedding of blood is no remission. That continues to be true, Hebrews 9 verse 22 tells us. Jesus not only served as the high priest making the offering, but He offered Himself. And that part is so amazing. He not only was the offerer, but He was also the offeree. He offered Himself. Hebrews 9.14 will say, He offered Himself without spot to God. And He did so, of course, for the intent that you and I might be the benefactors of that offering and be cleansed from our sin. Hebrews chapter 10 will describe that and discuss that in some detail, but how direct are the teachings of Hebrews 10 verses 12 to 14? As we close that slide, we've looked at nine things that might be offered in answer to the question, Whom say ye that I am? I've reserved number ten and the last one until this slide. The Son of God. All these other things that we've highlighted, sure enough, had some degree of correctness and some degree of concern of truth in them. But when Peter affirmed by saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, you'll notice that the Lord made pl placed a blessing upon Peter for that reply. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter spoke the truth, didn't he? Son of God. Why don't we reflect just a moment on some of the elements I've invited for consideration in that list. He walked on this planet in the nature of human flesh, as are you and I. But He did so with perfectness and sinlessness. And He did so presenting to us the fullness of the will of God, ushering in the teachings that would be a part of the new covenant. You'll notice near the top of that slide, it was He who said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The testimony of that extensive love of God. The Master was soon, of course, to be hanged on a cross. And did He not declare, If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto Me? John twelve thirty two. As He extends that invitation to one and all, He did confess to be the Son of God. He confessed to be the anointed Messiah. In the words of John 4.26, 
in the words of John chapter 9, to that man born blind, the Lord said He was the Messiah. He is the Son of God. May I say that we thus come a little bit short of where we should if we're quick to announce all the others, but we do not acknowledge Him to be the Son of God because He was and He is. It is for that reason, you'll know a little bit further on that slide, what a blessing of fullness of presentation of God's grace and His love to all of us. Indeed, the Lord is. One final thing on that slide. This one is just merely a rather obvious summary. The Lord made a lot of claims while He was here upon the earth. It's easy to read about the claims He made. The question now and the observation is this, and I've asked you to note it the way I've put it on that slide. If Jesus is not who He said He was, then He's an absolute fake, He's an imposter, He's a first-rate, great-A liar. But on the other hand, if He is who He said He was, then it is our task, our lovely chore, to humbly and respectfully bow before Him and to acknowledge that He is the Son of God, a great teacher, no doubt, and a fine, good man. And this last slide is merely a quick reminder of the ten we've looked at. One by one as we've looked at all of them, now the fact is easy to see. Whom say ye that I am? Every one of us have to give a personal answer. We can't just answer because someone else said it, because our parents may have said it. Maybe our grandparents acknowledged it. What about me and what about you? Do I acknowledge by the way I live that He is the Son of God and the Lord of my life? Or do I only give lip service to that truth one day a week? It is something to consider and it's something to now acknowledge as we're about to stand and sing our song of encouragement. Is He the Lord of my life and yours? The Bible presents Him as the Son of God. Whom say ye that I am? What's your answer and what's mine? If we could be of some assistance now in someone's response to this invitation presented in the Word of God, it'd be our joy to do so. As a wayward child of God, if you would wish to come back to a place of lovely fidelity near the Master, acknowledge those sins, confess them, repent of them. Jesus has promised to forgive you, 1 John 1 verse 7. If you'd like to become a Christian, that too could be accomplished in a matter of moments. Believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. You could leave this building tonight fully confident that you're headed to heaven because your name's in the book of life. These matters, or even prayers of encouragement, we'd be honored as a Christian family to buoy you up in a time of great challenge. That'd be our joy as well. If any of these things would be the need of your life, we invite you to come as you acknowledge whom say the Lord to be the Son of God, and you would wish to bow before Him. If we could help in some way, won't you come while together we stand and sing the selected song?